my name's Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. So if we haven't met before, at the end of the service, I'll be up front. I'd love to meet you uh, and to talk to you more and get to know you and tell you about Grace Bible Church. Uh, I've been here for a little while now, so I think I know a little bit about it. So I'd love to tell you more about it if you have any questions. We're back in our series in the book of Luke. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll remember uh, we've been systematically going through the book of Luke, uh, and we've been looking at the first followers of Jesus, right? Our goal is to see how Jesus built an unstoppable movement. Uh, As we study the gospel of Luke, we're going to learn how Jesus amazed and he called his first followers. We want to invite you to join us every Sunday to do that with us. We're going to pick up the story of Jesus back in Luke chapter 6 today, and we'll start in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, in the seats in front of you, on those little metal racks, and in those Bibles, we're on page 862. So as you turn there, I'll remind you of what's been going on uh, just before our passage today. You'll remember last week we talked about uh, calling the doctor, Dr. Jesus, the Jesus who heals That was really loud in the microphone. It was like... (laughs) But you'll remember uh, that we we were talking about that Jesus who was healing. He was going around teaching the good news of his kingdom, that he was the Messiah uh, they were waiting for, and people got angry at him. He was the good doctor who healed not only physically, but spiritually, and the Jewish leadership got angry at him. He's been calling people to join his kingdom, to join his movement. He's calling all kinds of people. He's calling poor people. He's calling blue-collar workers, middle-class people. And he's calling rich tax collectors to come and join him, to join his movement. You may remember that after the Jewish leaders are already trying to find a way to shut Jesus down, they're trying to stop his movement that he's building. And so there's a little gap between what we talked about last week and this week. And during that gap, the disciples, his followers, the large group of disciples are hungry and they grab some wheat from a field and they rub it together and they eat it. They're doing work on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders call him out on that. They try and find that as a way to attack him. And then Jesus heals again on the Sabbath. He's doing work on the Sabbath and he's called out by the religious establishment. They say, Jesus, you're not living the way you're supposed to live. You're not following the way the ancestors lived. The good life is one that follows all the laws, and you're not doing that, Jesus. That's our context that we're coming into today as we look at our text. As we look at the first follower of Jesus today, we're going to see how Jesus began to build this unstoppable movement by welcoming people to join him in the good life. But we'll see how that good life's a little different. So we'll see how he called people to the good life, what he said the comfort of the good life was, and what the challenge that he gave for the good life looked like. So it's my prayer by the time we're finished today, you'll see how Jesus calls his followers to live a life that looks radically different, extremely different than what the rest of the world imagines the good life to be. That Jesus' way is hardship now, but it's eternal glory later. And that you'll heed Jesus' warning in this text, his woe of ease now, because that equals eternal judgment later. If you're able, would you stand with me in reverence and in honor for the reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord from the book of Luke, beginning in chapter 6, verse 12. 
says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all of the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for your word of comfort and your word of challenge. We ask that you would do just that today, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, that you would challenge those who need to be challenged, that we would hear your calling to your good life and that we would respond to it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, Samuel. You may be seated. So again, as we come to Jesus today, as we look at his first followers and how he called his first followers, we remember that he's been healing. He's been preaching the good news of his kingdom. Everyone, though, is upset about it. I guess not everyone, but the establishment is upset about it, right? He's been drawing crowds well, he shares the good news with them. We see again, remember in that gap between last week and this week, that the king who reigns high couldn't help but stoop low in compassion to bend down and to heal people on his way. And as he does, the Jewish leaders get upset with him. Who does this man think that he is? Right? If you look back to verse 11 uh, in that gap between last week and this week, they're filled with fury. And they discuss among themselves what they might do to this Jesus. It's with this context, and I think with one other context uh, in mind, that Jesus goes to be alone and pray. Our first verse today, right? In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. It's with that in mind, he goes to be alone, to commune with his Father, to spend time in prayer with God, the Savior of the world, God made flesh, spends all night alone on a mountaintop praying to his Father. 
See, his public ministry started. He's already seeing, he's already feeling the oppression. And he knows he has a big choice in front of him. He's about uh, to gather his group of followers that he's gotten, this large group of people who claim to be part of him. And he needs to choose now who will be his inner circle. He's trying to, he knows he's about to decide who's going to stand beside him in the early days of his ministry, in his earthly ministry, and to carry out this movement when he leaves. When I go, who's going to be left behind? Jesus thinking, Jesus, I believe that night had the cross in mind, and he's up all night deciding who's going to be his 12. He had his church in mind. Who will be the ones to spread my message to the corners of the earth? Who will allow it to go all the way to Colleen, Texas? In a very real sense, I think that night, Jesus had you in mind while he was praying. It was a big decision to make, so he pulled an all-nighter in prayer, in communion with the Father. In verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve, whom he named the apostles. Day comes, it's time to choose who these are going to be who from my crowd of followers are going to be my inner disciples who will be the apostles I choose from among them who will be the 12 and the word chose here is similar to the word or it is the word actually for elected or called right who are the ones that I'm going to choose to have this mission who's going to help me establish my kingdom here who am I going to call to the good life to help establish that good life here and in the future, to be one of my twelve. Twelve's an interesting number, and probably most of you went straight to an idea when he said the number twelve, right? The twelve tribes of Israel, probably. And there have been several different attempts to guess at why he would have chose twelve, what symbolic thing it might have been, but I think your original thought of twelve and mine is what most scholars say is probably right. You see, Jesus was being followed around and people were seeing him followed by 12. And what would they think? Who does this man think he is, right? He's already been in the synagogue talking about who he is, saying that he's the Messiah they've been waiting for, the Son of Man. And now he does this physical thing. He chooses 12, just like the 12 tribes of Israel. Does he think he's better than our father Jacob? Or does he think he's better than Moses? Maybe he thinks he's the new Moses. Who does he think he is that he can lead the 12 tribes? They'd be right, though that really was what Jesus was telling them through his actions. He wasn't just saying it in the synagogue. He was demonstrating it by what he did. Notice he didn't make himself one of those 12. He was the Lord of the 12. He made it clear even through his selecting of his inner circle And who does he call? Who does he choose? Verse 14. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Who did he call? We've already met some of them, right? Ordinary men. He didn't go to Rome and find the wise people there or the rich people there. He didn't go to the Jewish synagogue and get the educated people there, the people who know about the religion. Who did he call? He called 
fishermen to be in his inner circle. He called tax collectors. He called anti-establishment zealots, people who were against Rome. He called hot-headed individuals, sometimes people who were rash and uncaring. And the gospel didn't hide their flaws, right? These were ordinary men. He called one who Luke reminds us quickly, right in the beginning of his calling, that would become a traitor. Didn't Jesus spend all night praying about this? All night? And this is who he chose? You're telling me he pulled an all-nighter and these were the ones who would be the twelve. But you know, Jesus knew who his twelve would be and he still spent all night communing with God, with the Father before his big decision. And it didn't change who he called. Their flaws and mistakes also, though, wouldn't change God's plan and what he would do and his kingdom that he would establish, this good life he would establish. So he's chosen his 12, his ordinary men. And we pick up in verse 17. He came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So after calling his inner circle from his larger group of disciples, he now has his inner twelve, his apostles, and he comes down from the mountain with them and the rest of his followers And they come to a level place. And there's a crowd of people waiting for him. He's been up all night long. He has his mission in mind. He has the cross in mind. He has you in mind. And there's a crowd of people waiting. And they've traveled long distances to see him. Some of them three or four days of travel. Why? Because they've heard about this Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say, right? That's the first thing that we're told they came to hear him and also to be healed of their diseases. They want to hear about this kingdom, about this movement that he's starting, what we know now would be an unstoppable movement. They want to hear about this good life that he's been calling people to. And they also want to come to this doctor to be healed because they know he doesn't flinch like we talked about last week. They want to be cured of unclean spirits. And they crowd him. And they reach for him. They see his power and they want to touch him. And what does the king who sits high do? Jesus, full of compassion, can't help but bend down and heal them. It's this pattern we see. And not only does he heal some of them, what does the text say? He heals them all. Them all. So Jesus is about to preach what later we'll call the Sermon on the Plain. Your Bible might call it that. Some people call it the Sermon on the Level. Jesus was on the level. We'll begin looking at that sermon in a minute. And we'll see how he gives... um, Sorry, in, in just a minute. But now I want you to see one thing before we get there. He's just called from his larger group, his 12, his inner circle. He's called them to the good life. He's called them to be his apostles, his ambassadors for his kingdom. He's called them to the good life. This ragtag group of 12 men who have no business being part of his team. 
They have no business even being friends, let alone teammates, right? A zealot and a tax collector. The man who'd be the rock on which his church is formed and the man who would betray him. And what's the unifying theme of all of them? Jesus. He's what brings the men together, only Jesus. And they've seen what this man can do. They've seen a little bit of what his kingdom is like. They've seen the healing, the restoration. They're probably excited to be called to his inner circle. They've seen this man's power, and they probably feel honored. They're probably thinking, I mean, actually, in fact, we know what they're thinking, right? Later, they tell us exactly what they're thinking. Later, they ask, who gets to sit on your left and right hand in glory, right? They're thinking that they're hot stuff, and they think they get to reign with them here, with him here and now on earth. They think they're about to live the good life because they've been called by Jesus to it. Sure, I may have left everything they might be thinking to follow this man, but soon he's going to richly bless me here and now, right? I did a search for the good life on Instagram. I had to actually like figure out what my password was and get back on, but I did it. I did a search on Instagram for the good life, and these were some of the pictures that came up. Um, pictures of vacations, of fancy cars. Maybe it's time with family or luxury, swimming pools and movie stars, and Starbucks cups for some reason. Lots and lots of Starbucks <laughs> cups. So many Starbucks cups. But if you were being called to the good life, if you were honest with yourself, what would you say the good life would look like? See, I think the disciples thought similarly, similarly to how we do now, that the good life is about power, it's about prestige, it's about position, maybe about never needing or wanting anything, never lacking for anything. It's about being well-fed. That's the good life, and that's what this world would say, right? Maybe you watched the coronation yesterday, and you saw what it was like for a king to be crowned, and all the pomp and circumstance. And I think that's what the disciples were thinking. That's what they thought they were getting. They said, I might be giving up some now, but I get to reign with the king here and now. They thought they were being called to the good life, to a life of comfort and of blessing. Sounds more like the good lie, I guess, huh? (laughs) Jesus is about to turn what the disciples think the good life is upside down on its head. Really what we think the good life is all about, right? The, the good lie isn't Jesus lying to the disciples and calling them to something and switching it on them, right? The good life isn't Jesus tricking them. It's the lie that this world tells us about what the good life is, that everything is about the here and the now. Let's read again verse 20 through 23. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, 
and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Do you notice who Jesus was speaking to here? Jesus didn't lift up his head to the entire crowd and speak to them. He isn't making a vast proclamation about people in general. Where does he lift up his eyes to? He lifts them up to his disciples. He speaks to those who would claim to follow him, to his followers, to those who say they're part of his kingdom. And he looks to them and he says, my kingdom is vastly different than what you think. In my kingdom, I flip what you think the good life is upside down on its head. If you were here years ago, years and years ago, I don't even know how many years ago. Do you know, Chris? We had a VBS and we called it the upside down kingdom. Uh, I guess it had to have been seven or eight years ago. I don't even know. It was a long time ago. But the reason we called it that is because Jesus says my movement is countercultural. You know who's blessed in my movement? You know who's what blessed often translates as, you'll hear, oh, how happy is the man, right? And that's true, but really, if you, if you dig deeper, blessed is fortunate. Who's fortunate? Blessed is fulfilled. Who's fulfilled? Blessed is lacking in nothing. It's the idea of the good life. He says, you know who is blessed like that? Who has the good life? The poor. The hungry the sad, the excluded, the reviled. Why? Because of the here and now? Because of what their life is like? Is Jesus spiritualizing poverty? Because it's somehow better to be poor, hungry, sad, and hated? No. Read the text. What is it? It's because of their future. Because of your future. It's because if you're part of my kingdom, he says, if you come to me poor and hungry and weak, He says, take heart. You're more rich than you could ever imagine. You'll be with me for eternity. You'll feast in the house of Zion. You'll be filled with joy and you'll weep no more. Your reward is great. You're following me. If you come to me and you have to give everything up to follow me, if you lose all your riches if your family betrays you, if you go hungry, and if you're hated because of me, because you follow me, he says, take heart. You are more rich than you could ever imagine. You'll be with me for eternity. You'll feast in the house of Zion. You will be filled with joy and weep no more. Your reward for following me is great. He gives the same answer to both people, right? If you're rich, if you have to, if you start off I'm sorry if you start off poor and you come to Jesus or if you become poor for following Jesus he gives them the same answer your reward is great for following me verse 21 blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh again he's saying your present circumstances are nothing compared to what's in store for you in my kingdom. If you're poor for my sake, you're blessed. What? If you're hungry for my sake, you're blessed. If you weep for my sake, 
you're blessed. Why? Because of what it's like now? No, because of future glory. Because you have me, you're part of my kingdom, you're part of the good life. I'm all you need, he says. Many of his disciples probably felt this already, or they soon would. We know that, right? Some of them left everything behind to follow Jesus. They left behind their nets full of fish. Um, They left behind their money from collecting taxes. And just this past Sabbath, some of them were hungry, had to pluck grains from the grain field just to satisfy their hunger. They would weep over unrepentant sinners. They would know hardship. They'd know pain and loss. They would soon know what it was like to be excluded, to be hated, to be imprisoned on account of the Son of Man. Some of them would be martyred for Jesus' sake. And Jesus says, when that happens, you're blessed. This is the good life, he says. When this happens, you're living the good life. Why? Because you have me and I'm all you need. He says, leap for joy. Not even talking about the future anymore. He says, in that very day, you have your reward for all of eternity. And then he says in verse 23, rejoice in that day. Why? Your reward's great in heaven, and you can count yourself like one of the prophets, right? So for so their fathers did to the prophets. They hated them too. He says, that's the way they treated treated my true prophets. And count it All joy, you're one of my true followers if this is what your life is like. He says, I don't promise comfort now. In fact, he says, I promise hardship now. What I promise, though, is eternity with me later. I promise glory later. There's your comfort for the good life. Hardship. But you have me and I'm all you need. When we think of people who've given up everything to follow Jesus, who do we think of, right? We might think of the martyrs, um, the apostles. We might think of famous missionaries. Um, and looking back from the future, I think sometimes it's easy to, to look at them and think, well, those were the heroes of the faith, right? They were super strong. Uh, these people weren't anything like me. They had an extra measure of grace to be able to give up everything to follow Jesus, Do you all know who the first American missionary was? Anybody know? Who? I heard something. David Brainer. You hear that sometimes? You hear Judson sometimes, right? The first American missionary was actually an ordinary man. His name was George Lyle. I think most people don't actually know that he was a missionary. He's often overlooked. Uh, People often say Judson, um, but before Judson, 20 years before Judson, in fact, Lyle left America to be a missionary in Jamaica. See, George Lyle was born in Virginia, and he was born a slave. And as a slave, he went to church with his master, who was a Baptist deacon. He's a Baptist deacon, and he brings his slave with him to church, and his slave finds Jesus. He meets Jesus. Jesus calls him there, and he calls him to the good life, the slave. He's born in Virginia. He's moved to Georgia, to Savannah, Georgia, uh, and his master is actually a loyalist to the crown. And like many loyalists, he was actually um, against slavery, 
He was uh, willing to free his slaves, and he frees George Lyle um, from his slavery before the Revolutionary War. He's freed, and they actually call him at his church to be a minister of the gospel. So he's freed, set free from his bonds of slavery, and he's drafted into a new kingdom to follow a new master. And he begins preaching to slaves who are still enslaved, and he preaches to them faithfully and well, and the war happens. And after the war, he's left in the south. And a British officer finds George and says, George, let's get you out of here. Let's ditch this place, and let's go to Jamaica. And he could have said, you know what, I'm done with this God thing, right? He hasn't protected me. I was a slave. I got freed. I thought I'll do gospel ministry. And now we lost the war. And now I'm going to become a slave again if I don't run and hide. And instead of running and hiding, what does he do? He goes to his church and he says, send me to Jamaica. I'm not going to run to Jamaica. Send me there. I'm going to be a missionary there. And he goes to Jamaica and he gives of himself generally. He says, I've been freed, but I've been freed to serve. I've been saved, but I've been saved to serve, to give of myself generously. Are you willing to give up comfort of this world for the comfort of the good life, for the comfort of the kingdom, for the true good life? He didn't, George Lyle didn't, take his freedom and say, I'm going to take my freedom and go be free and live my life however I want to, how I couldn't live before. He says, I'm going to be free to serve my new master. Are you willing to give up comfort of this world the same way he was? The comfort of the kingdom, the comfort for the comfort of the kingdom, for the true good life. I'm going to read verse 24 and 26 through 26 again. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus wasn't spiritualizing poverty like we talked about, or hunger, or sadness. He wasn't saying it's objectively better to be in those situations. What he was saying, though, to his followers was, you'll find yourself in these situations. He wasn't speaking to different groups or categories of people. He wasn't saying to the poor people this blessing, and to the hungry people this blessing, right? He looked up to his disciples. He's speaking to them. And he's saying, here is your comfort. Here's your good life. Here's how it is to be fortunate in my kingdom. If, well, for them really, when you lose everything for my sake, you have me, you have everything. So now continuing to look to them, he gives them the woes, or the warnings. Not the how to be happy or how to be blessed or how fortunate you are. This is now the contrast. The how unfortunate. The how unsatisfying for you, if. The how unfulfilling for you, if. The take heed, take caution. Here's the challenge of the good life that he gives them. The challenge of being part of his kingdom. He shows them the opposite scenarios, right? 
to the rich, to the well-fed, to those who laugh and enjoy the pleasures of this world, to those who have the approval of man. You've received your comfort already, he says. You've received your reward here and now. Can a Christian be well off? Is it okay for a Christian to be rich, to be well thought of, to be happy? Well, clearly we have examples of that in Scripture. Example of Christ's followers who are, right? David or Job was rich. He willingly gave it all up to follow Jesus. Or Lydia, she's rich and she generously gives to the church. Or Levi, we just saw last week, right? A rich tax collector. What does he do when he follows Jesus? He gives it up and he throws a party. He has great joy in it, right? So clearly that's not what he's saying. Zacchaeus similarly gave up generously when he's called to Jesus, right? So what is Jesus saying then? He's saying it's hard. It's a challenge. There's challenge to the good life. It's a hindrance to the good life. If you seek those things, if you seek riches or physical or um, satisfaction of your physical needs here or what people think of you over what Christ thinks of you or over your desire to seek Him and His kingdom first, if you seek joy in the here and now, what does He say? He says, how terrible for you. Woe to you. How unfortunate for you. For you to be satisfied now, you've received your reward. That's the way the ancestors treated the false prophets, he said. And you're counting yourself. You found yourself, your place among them. He's saying, just like the poor are tempted to steal and profane the name of the Lord, the rich have their troubles too. He's saying, the rich are tempted to not depend on God. He's saying craziness is going about this life acting like it's all there is. That the kingdom of heaven isn't actually at hand. See, none of us would probably say that this is the way we think or the way we believe or the way we want to live our lives. But when we actually are honest with ourselves, what do our actions, our thoughts, our words really show? When you thought of what the good life was, earlier. What was that? What were you setting your hopes on? What do you spend your time, your energy, your talents on? Or what do you spend your money on? The craziness of acting like this life is all it is, is kind of like mowing your lawn when a tornado is heading right towards you, right? (laughs) It's silly, but that's literally what we're doing, right? Just happily living like there's no tomorrow. It's insane. But it's what we do, right? What is the wealthy and physically taken care of Christian supposed to do then? What are we called to do biblically? We have examples. Fear God. Obey Him. We're called to be generous and to not be arrogant. We're called to not set our hope on our riches, but on God. To give freely, like George Lyle did. You've been freed to be able to serve. You've been freed to be able to give freely. What could that look like for you? 
Maybe it's not taking a job or promotions. You have more time to be with family or to follow Jesus or to serve the church. Maybe it's simplifying your life so that you can uh, serve the church better through foster care or through adoption. Maybe you're called to go overseas. Maybe you're called to give generously to people who are. So what? What does the king have to say to those who've been called to his kingdom? The ones he's called to the good life, called to be his followers, called to join him in this unstoppable movement? To those who need comfort, what does he say? To those who are poor and hungry, those who weep, who are despised, who are rejected, who are hated for his name. To those of you today who need comfort, Jesus says, take heart. You have me, you have everything. He says, hardship now, but you get me forever in glory. You'll feast with me in the house of Zion. And to those of us who are taken care of physically, to those who laugh the spung laugh of satisfaction and superiority, to those who only worry about what others think of them, what does he say? Take caution. Be careful, lest you have your reward here on earth. So if you find yourself in this place, I know Jesus wants me to be willing to give up everything to follow him. I know I'm called to hold his, this world loosely and to be generous. I know I'm supposed to have hardship now and glory later, but I can't. He tells you, take heart also. Jesus isn't giving these words to his disciples just to tell them, I'm sorry, it's too late. The good life's closed. The kingdom is closed. What is he saying? It's what he's been saying all along. He's saying, repent. Call the doctor. Tell him your needs. Ask him for his help. Because Jesus stands ready. He wants to welcome you into his kingdom. He wants to welcome you into the real and true good life. He wants to welcome you to the feast of the Lamb to eat with you in his house. He wants to welcome you to eternal joy and satisfaction. Call out to Jesus. Jesus stands ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your calling. We thank you for your comfort in that calling. We ask that you would comfort those who need to be comforted and that you would challenge those who need to be challenged. We ask that you would help us to be generous with our time, with our talents, with our money, because you have been so generous to us. We ask that you would help us to seek you and your kingdom first, that we would see the good life not in the way the world sees the good life, but in the way that you do. We ask that you would help us to live in light of your kingdom, that we would live as freed people who are free to serve and free to give generously. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.